I married into money, and for those of you who know me, that's strange to say. I married a pastor's daughter, but I was halfway through my degree at Maritime Christian College, and she was the payroll manager for the city of Charlottetown. She had a really good-paying job, and it took me eight years in the ministry before I actually matched what she was making that year we got married. And I took her away from PEI, and she could have been working there today and probably be early retired, but we'll not complain about that. But anyway, so I had scholarships. I played hockey for UPEI and was making $1,000 a year from them for that. So money wasn't an issue. The last summer leading up to my final year of school, I decided I I don't need a job. I'll just work with my dad on the farm. I'll help him plant the crops. I'll help him cut hay and bale it and do all of that stuff. But then I got a phone call from the new people that were running Green Gables Golf Course. And they said they'd heard about me and that they wanted to hire me as the course marshal. Six dollars an hour in 1982. This, this was amazing. And I went, I started to work, and three hours after I was there, the pro at the golf course came up. He gave me my membership, which was, to the, today's value, somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000. That's what that was worth. That membership was really important to me. And then later on that summer, I discovered they actually thought they hired my brother, who was a really good golfer. He was the island champ, and they ended up with the island chump. But I I wasn't too bad a golfer, but not like my brother. But when you commit to membership in the church, you become part of a very special 2,000-year-old God-ordained institution. And Jesus said, I will build my church, and death will not be able to have any power over it. And in the Bible, the church is referred to as a building where each one in it is like a living stone built upon the other. It's also referred to as a family and as a body which has many parts and each part is supporting the other. Then in the Bible, the church is referred to as bread where it has many different ingredients that all work together to build one beautiful loaf. And in the early service, I told them, this morning at breakfast, I had 21 grain bread. You can't get anything more dense than that. Bought it out at Costco, but it's terrific. But that's what the church is like. It's like 21 grain bread. We're all together building something beautiful. And then the Bible says the church is like a bride who normally gets help getting beautifully dressed up on her wedding day so she can be beautiful for her groom. And I've had two daughters get married and get dressed in our home, and and I've seen all that stuff, them running around, helping one another, doing their hair, etc. It is a big thing. Now, the Bible teaches us to love one another to pray, encourage, comfort, edify, honor, accept, live in harmony with, instruct, forgive, bear with, and serve one another. All of those things we are told to do. And the Lord intends for us to live in a community. As Christians, we're not to be living in isolation, but we're there with all other believers. And when we face temptations, we can know we're not on our own here, that we have other believers in that community that will strengthen and encourage us. 
In Acts chapter 2, we're told that the first believers were baptized. And then it says, the Lord added them to the church, those who were being saved. Now, they didn't have an option to join the church if they wanted to or not. They were automatically added to the church of God because they made that commitment. So being part of the church is being involved in the eternal work of Jesus Christ. And it's the most important enterprise in the world. The Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave up his life for it. He was willing to do that. That's how important he felt that the church was. So we need to take membership in the church seriously. So we're presently working through a series of messages entitled, Count Me In. And we're talking about the expectations that we have of you as a member of Halifax Christian Church. And last week, we talked about the importance of meeting together weekly for corporate worship. And today, what we're going to do is look at this commitment. And the commitment is, I will study God's Word. And we'd love for you to do it in a group of believers, to study with community, in, with other believers. Acts 2.42 records what the first Christians did. It says, The community continually committed themselves to learning what the apostles taught them, gathering for fellowship, breaking bread, and praying. And notice it says that they continually committed themselves to learning what the apostles had to say. Like that was number one. But then they gathered together for fellowship or for community. So this isn't a requirement to be a member of our congregation, but we encourage you to spend at least one hour a week studying the Bible with other people who love God's Word. Like that could be in one of the life groups that we have going on throughout the week. It could be in the young adult group if you were in that age bracket, or if you're a teenager, it could be at youth group on Friday nights. But there are many different ways that we can study the Bible together. Even get two or three other believers that want to study with you and spend that time together with them each week. The Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Timothy, do everything you can to present yourself to God as a man who is fully genuine, a worker unashamed of your mission, a guide capable of leading others along the correct path defined by the word of truth. So being a church member means you're doing your best to be knowledgeable about God's word so that you can then lead others in that same direction so that you can share it with them. So why study God's word? Why put so much emphasis on getting you to read the Bible? And the answer is simple because the Bible provides us with the spiritual nourishment for our soul. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 23. You have been reborn, not from seed that eventually dies, but from seed that is eternal, through the word of God that lives and endures forever. For as Isaiah said, all life is like the grass, and its glory like a flower. The, gla- the grass will wither and die, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord will endure forever. This is the word that has been preached to you. So get rid of hatefulness and deception, of insincerity and jealousy and slander. Be like newborn babies crying out for spiritual milk that will help you grow into salvation if you have tasted and found the Lord to be good. 
The Bible also tells us in that passage that it is like nutritional milk for young Christians. A healthy newborn baby instinctively craves milk, and if they're like my grandson Seth, he craved it on an hourly basis, like all throughout the night, and he wasn't shy in letting you know that he was hungry. He woke up the whole house. And when you're born into the family of God, you naturally hunger for spiritual nourishment. Like Jesus even said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. So when you study and digest God's word, it feeds your soul, it develops your spiritual muscles, and it enables you to be prepared to tell other people about it. It's our primary source of spiritual growth. Feeding a hungry baby is fun, unless it is in the middle of the night. But babies, they, they get so hungry. Their body's just vibrating as they're crying and screaming for milk. And you put that bottle in, and all of a sudden the crying just stops. Sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a little slow uh, waning. <clears throat> but... Uh, they eventually calm down, and you're a hero because you provided that food for them. But it's not much fun to cook a special meal for some fussy teenager who picks at what you've put on that plate. Maybe they don't even eat it at all, or they've eaten something on the way home, and they don't eat their dinner. That isn't fun at all, but it's a joy to teach the Bible to new Christians, to spiritual infants. Because they're hungry for spiritual truth. They want to know more and more. But then sometimes there are people that have moved further along on that process of discipleship and growth, and we'd refer to them as spiritual children. But they complain. They're picky eaters. They're overfed. They're under-exercised. They complain about the food. Like Psalm 119, verse 97, describes the type of believer that we want you to be. I deeply love your law. I think about it all day long. Now, the law is in reference to the Old Testament scriptures, but the psalmist is saying, I think about it all day long. And that's what we want to have for the people of HCC. It doesn't mean that we're going to be reading the Bible all day long and getting in one accident after another. It doesn't mean we're going to be getting in trouble at work because we read the Bible for eight hours instead of doing our job but we read it to start the day, and then we're thinking about it. Maybe at lunchtime we read again, but we constantly remind ourselves of what God has to say. But you've seen some awful pictures of malnourished children in developing world countries with distended stomachs, and you would think that those children are starving. But aid workers say that when they go to those areas... The children have no appetite at all because they haven't eaten for so long. They just lose the desire to eat. So they have to actually force feed little bits of food, little bits of milk into them until they start to build their nourishment and they start to develop an appetite. So the lack of appetite is a sign of a severe illness. And there are some undernourished Christians who have no appetite for the Word of God. And we can't force you to eat, to read. We're trying to create a hunger within you for your own spiritual survival. And like Peter said, like spiritual babies, crave 
the spiritual milk that will help you grow into salvation if you have tasted and found that the Lord is good. Now, the Bible also has meat or spiritual meat for the mature. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, by this time, you ought to be teachers yourselves, yet I feel like you want me to reteach you the most basic things that God wants you to know. It's almost like you're a baby again, coddled at your mother's breast, nursing, not ready for solid food. No one who lives on milk alone knows, I like this phrase, the ins and outs of what it means to be righteous and pursue justice. That's because he is only a baby. But solid food is for those who have come of age, for those who have learned through practice to distinguish good from evil. That God told the older Christians, the more mature Christians, that they would need to have a deeper understanding of his will. Uh, they can't just be satisfied with milk the rest of their lives. See, something's not right if a 10-year-old just wants milk and those horrible little baby foods that come in the little bottles that we used to feed to our children or arrowroot cookies. But now arrowroot cookies might be okay. They, I, I like those. I'd feed one to my, my daughters and then one for you, two for daddy. It, it was always very fair. One cookie for you, two for daddy. But if a 10-year-old only wants baby food, there's something seriously wrong. And as we mature in Christ, our spiritual appetite changes. You want something that has a little more substance to it. You want to be able to chew on something. You realize that there's more to the Christian life than just being saved. That's not the end. It doesn't stop there. So the Bible has the answer to overcoming addictions. It has the answer to forgiving past abuses. It has the answer to transforming attitudes, dealing with temptation, enduring painful experiences, developing in-depth relationships, knowing God's will and his nature, developing holiness. And then it also tells us about how to prepare for the Lord's return. Like the Bible just never grows old because this book contains so many directions for how we're to live the Christian life. Back when Hurricane Juan struck here in 2003, I'm sure there were hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in HRM that were digging out their home insurance policies. They were trying to figure out whether they had coverage for things like a tree coming through their roof or a roof being blown off or maybe they were even wondering if they could have coverage for water damage or possibly even to be able to stay in a hotel and while the house was being repaired and then have their insurance company cover that. But they were going through all the fine print and they'd find words that they didn't understand and they'd look up the meaning of those words, even phrases they didn't understand. Once again, look it up. They studied that policy because a lot of money was at stake. The Bible is so much more than an insurance policy and there's so much more at stake for us that we are going to study it. We are going to look at that fine print. If you have a Bible with very small print, we're going to dig into it with delight. We want to learn more. And when people say that the Bible is dull, that's an indication that they don't understand what's at stake. 
Healthy Christians will want to study the Bible. The Bible actually uses the word devour. That's how much we will want to know what is in there because it provides nourishment. Remember Jesus said, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now that's God's word. Now, why should we study God's word in community, as I mentioned earlier? Like, you could get a really good study Bible. We could even loan you some books that you could take with you, which would help you to understand that certain book of the Bible that you're studying. But you just never get as much out of that as you would out of studying with other people. So here are some reasons why we ask you to commit to studying with other believers. It's an opportunity to learn from someone who maybe knows the Bible better than you do, so you can learn from their knowledge. In Acts chapter 8, there's a story there about a man from Ethiopia. He had traveled up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover at the temple, and while he was there, he'd heard about the arrival of the much-awaited Messiah. But he was thinking the Messiah was going to be more like this political Messiah, and He was going to straighten things out with the Romans and give them peace in their country. But then he'd heard the rumors that he came more as a a spiritual Messiah. and He came to love and do things like that. So he was a little confused about that. He's on his way back home. And he asked the guy, just stop the chariot altogether. He digs out a scroll containing the book of Isaiah And he's reading through it. He's reading the prophecies. And here was one of the prophecies that he read. It said, The Messiah would be like a lamb to be slaughtered. And God laid on him, this silent sufferer, the sins of of us all. And he's confused about what those prophecies meant. So as he's sitting there, Philip and a Christian evangelist comes along and basically yells out to him, Hey, do you understand what you're reading? And In verse 31 of chapter 8 in Acts, the Ethiopian said, How can I understand it unless I have a mentor? And then he invited Philip to sit in the chariot. So Philip got up into the chariot with him, and he used the book of Isaiah and other books throughout the Old Testament, and he pointed out to him how Jesus of Nazareth was the fulfillment of all those scriptures, that he was this long-awaited Messiah. And the result was this man believed in Jesus and he was baptized, but he needed someone to teach him what those complicated prophecies meant. And that was where Philip came on the scene and helped him out. So there are times when we need someone else to teach us, or we need someone to help with those difficult things to understand. So there are people that are especially gifted in that way, and we need to be sure to be close to them to learn how to understand God's Word. So it doesn't matter how mature you are, but I've been a Christian now, it's getting getting frightening, over 40 years. And a parable like the prodigal son or the lost son that Jesus told about the man that had two sons and and one took his inheritance and went and wasted it all. Like I I thought, you know, I know that in and out. When someone else teaches about that, I can just sit back and dream about golfing on a nice summer day if it's the middle of the winter or if it's the middle of summer and it's really hot sitting there, I can think about a nice cool day in the winter. 
But one time, a few years ago, I, I attended another church, and this young guy was speaking, and he pointed out something that was really neat. He said, in this parable, the father ran to his son. When he noticed his son coming from a distance, he ran to him. And for a man to run in that culture was undignified. And the young guy said, you know why he did that? It's because when the, the son was coming home, he was going to be ridiculed by everybody because of the decisions he'd made, wasting his father's inheritance. So the father ran to meet him so that the attention would be on his indignity and not on the embarrassment of his son. And then he said, you know, that's what God does for us. He takes the punishment. He takes the ridicule that rightfully belongs to us. And he draws all the attention onto himself when that attention should be on us. And I thought, that's a great observation. So it doesn't have to be new. It doesn't have to be clever to nourish us. Sometimes it's just the basic things that feed us when we're hungry. So let's say you skip lunch tomorrow, and by dinner time you are extremely hungry. It's not your turn to prepare dinner, so you come home, come through the door. What's for dinner? And you hear, we're having hamburgers. And you think, now, we had that last week, and you're not going to think, now, I don't want hamburgers again. I want some really nice meal, you know, one, uh, this really divine gourmet meal. And if I don't get that, I'm not going to eat. But you don't say that. You're hungry. So sometimes when we're hungry, we will eat the same things. Like how many of you have had teenagers take the same lunch to school Every day, 200, actually, they only go about 150 days. When we went to school, it was 220 days, I'm sure. But every day, they take the same thing to school. When we're hungry, we will eat the same things over and over again. So if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, you don't have to be served some exotic spiritual feast. You don't have to go chasing after the latest Christian fad that we hear people talking about out there. The basics are good enough. Now we study God's word in community because we also benefit from the experiences of other believers. Even if you're a new Christian, others are going to benefit from your input. Because maybe you think, okay, I'm a new Christian and and I don't really have that much to contribute to a group Bible study. But you know something? When you ask questions or you make comments about how a passage of Scripture applies to you, that actually inspires and it blesses and brings a new freshness to the older Christians that are there because it enables them to see God's Word in a new way. I love talking to people whose journey to Christ has brought them from horrible circumstances. I even overheard one of the guys working here yesterday telling one of the others about what his life was like prior to coming to this church and finding Christ. So it it might be coming from poverty. It might be coming from addictions. It might be coming from experiencing various kinds of abuse. It might be coming from a life of sin. But every time I hear them tell their story about how thankful they are that Jesus has saved them, that encourages me. That just builds me up, and I have a new appreciation for what God has done for me and for others. So if those new Christians don't speak up, 
then we miss out on all of that. We miss out on that experience. So take every opportunity you have to share your experience with others and see them be built up as a result. Studying the Bible with others also makes us accountable. Like We can commit to studying the Bible on our own, but it, it's kind of hard to keep that sometimes when we are on our own. Other things interfere. But if we meet regularly with a group and we miss a night, someone will say, hey, missed you on Thursday night. Is everything okay? So you feel kind of obligated to be there. You're also accountable to study with a godly attitude. Like First Peter tells us that we need to Feed ourselves with a steady diet of God's word. But like any diet, there are words that we're going to have to eliminate. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, So get rid of hatefulness and deception, of insincerity and jealousy and slander. Those are the things we need to get rid of if we are going to grow as Christians. And if you try to study the Bible and you're full of anger then you're not going to be nourished by it. That's like drinking a Diet Coke, thinking, okay, Diet Coke, this is all right for me, and then eating this snack that has all kinds of calories in it. Like one is actually going to negate the good of the other. And you might not pick up on this by yourself, but because you're with a group of other believers, they notice what's going on in your life. They notice the struggle you're having with this other individual. And they might speak up and say, you know, you really need to forgive that person. Or maybe they'll speak up and say, I think you need to confront him or her in order to be able to deal with this properly. So you'll discover that some Christians really help you by making you accountable for your attitudes and your actions. And when you study in a group, you become accountable for sound teaching. 1 Timothy verse 4, actually chapter 4, verse 16. Take care of yourself. Concentrate on your teaching and stick with these things. If you do, then you will be effective in bringing salvation to yourself and all who hear you. So studying the Bible in community makes us less likely to kind of get swept away with any false teaching that is out there. And then in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, the word Bereans isn't used in here, but these are Christians in the city of Berea. But the Jewish people were more receptive than they had been in Thessalonica, They warmly and enthusiastically welcomed the message and then day by day would check for themselves to see if what they heard from Paul and Silas was truly in harmony with the Hebrew scriptures. So now these guys weren't critical people. Notice that it says they warmly and enthusiastically welcomed the message, but then they weren't gullible either. They welcomed the message, but they went home and checked their own Bibles to make certain that what the apostles were saying to them, what they were teaching them, was accurate. So that's the type of believers we want to build here, people that are going to know their Bibles well enough so that if we say something on a Sunday and you're thinking, I don't know, you go home, you check that out, you'll find it's okay, but you'll go home and check it out anyway. No, no, there are things that we get backwards here. Don't worry. And then studying the Bible in a group develops in-depth relationships. 
And this is a real key, and the message next week is going to concentrate on this aspect. So the early Christians devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and to community, to communion, and to prayer. And in Acts 2, 46, they were unified as they worshipped at the temple day after day. In homes, they broke bread and shared meals with glad and sincere hearts. So the study of the teaching of the apostles, that was number one for them. But then another important aspect for them was the fact that community came as a result of that. So there's something about studying the Bible together that develops meaningful relationships. And it happens quicker, it happens easier, and the relationships go deeper than anything else you do. You can play cards with people on a weekly basis, but if that's all you do and you don't have conversation with them, it doesn't develop a deep relationship. Like We can watch sports with other people, as I do. And if that's all we do is just watch the game and comment on the game, we don't develop a deep relationship. But when you study the Bible together, you're talking about the primary issues that we deal with in life. We're talking about what is on our hearts. We open up our hearts and you soon realize that you're kindred spirits. And if you know Anna Green Gables, that's where I worked at that golf course so I can use that word. We become kindred spirits in Christ because a deep community relationship has been developed. Now at first when people get together in a group like that, maybe they're slightly hesitant about opening up about their lives. And then eventually one person says, you know, my son's not living the way he should be. And another one says, you know, I'm concerned about my daughter too. And then another one says, you know, I've just been to the doctor. He diagnosed a tumor. I'm going to have to have surgery. And then someone else says, you know, I'm a cancer survivor and you can beat this. And then they start praying for one another. Then phone calls start to happen. Then they start to visit together. And before long, real community has developed. So that's what the church is all about. It's moving from being an audience to community. If all you do is attend worship, you'll actually learn some Bible from our messages because they are based upon the Scripture, but you're missing out on so much more of what God has in store for your life. So one of the primary benefits of Bible study is to be reminded of our priorities. And Jesus said that one day, this world that we live in is going to be destroyed. There are all kinds of guesses as to how that's going to happen, but we just know it will happen. The world will be destroyed with fervent heat. And some people will say, oh, that's not going to happen. There's no way. But we read in God's Word that it is going to happen, and we can trust it. But the amazing thing is, if we have our hope in Christ we will escape the devastation that will take place on that day and we will be in heaven forever. That's the most amazing promise of all. 1 Peter 1, verse 24. For as Isaiah said, all life is like the grass and its glory like a flower. The grass will wither and die and the flower falls but the word of the Lord will endure forever. So God's word 
that was first spoken to Adam and Eve as they just walked through the Garden of Eden and had communication with him. And then God's word was spoken through the patriarchs, those Old Testament greats like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Moses later on and Joseph. God spoke through them. And then after that, God's word came through the prophets. The prophets gave notice of issues that were wrong in the lives of the people, but they also pointed to the future and the coming of this Messiah who would come and just kind of straighten everything out in the people's lives. But it didn't stop there. The Messiah came. And we read about his life, about his death, about his resurrection. Then we read about his ascension back to heaven. But still, it it doesn't stop there. God's word came to the apostles. And they shared his word and instructed us on how to live faithfully for God. Bible-believing pastors have faithfully proclaimed God's word to you. If you want to place your trust in Christ... That's a simple decision. You can walk to the front and talk to me about it. You can meet with me afterwards. You can talk to one of our other leaders here. You can send us an email, whatever you want. But don't leave here without making the step to be in connection with Jesus Christ. Because he said in his word, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved.